Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The mention of a Soviet spy today conjures up images most often seen in movies or read about in novels set in the Cold War era. Washington, or maybe some place near a large defense contractor or university doing research, would usually be the location for these stories. But what about Lancaster County? Today we have the story of 50-year-old Robert Lipka of Millersville, who was arrested and convicted of handing over classified documents to KGB agents in the mid-1990s. He was 50 in the mid-1990s. To tell the story is former FBI agent John Whitehead. Agent Whitehead, welcome to the program. It's nice to be with you. It is Whiteside. Oh, Whiteside. I'm sorry. <laughs> Whiteside it is a former FBI agent, John Whiteside, author of the book Fool's Mate, a true story of espionage at the National Security Agency. If you have a question or a comment, uh, this is uh, quite a story. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. All right, Agent Whiteside, let's go back to uh, September 1992. You're called into the FBI's Philadelphia field office to Describe that meeting. Well, it was a very intense meeting. There was a couple of uh, FBI agents from the FBI headquarters who came up, and they made a presentation to a group of us on the counterintelligence squad in Philadelphia regarding the uh, new case. They had a secret uh, KGB officer who had defected from Russia, and he had brought with him some 1,700 volumes of information he slowly copied through the years while assigned in Moscow. And uh, one of those pieces of information that he provided was the information about Robert Lipka being a spy at the National Security Agency. And at the time, uh, Robert Lipka, when you found out about this, was living in Millersville in Lancaster County. Uh, What can you tell us about uh, Robert Stephen Lipka? What kind of person was he? He was a very complex person. Uh, He grew up in, he was born in Niagara Falls, New York, he was one of four children. He was the second son and second child of uh, Stephanie and Gust Lipka. Uh, his father worked as an emergent marine on Lake Erie at the time. And at some point, his parents separated. And strangely enough, uh, three of the children stayed with the mom, and only Robert Lipka went with his father. And they moved around Pennsylvania, eventually settling in uh, the Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania area, where he attended high school at uh, Cumberland Valley High School. He was uh, a bright kid. He had 100 and, over 130 IQ. Uh, he did, apparently did well in school. However, he didn't graduate. And uh, because he didn't graduate in 1963, uh, he fail, had failed English. He said that he was going to go into the Army. At that point in his life, he did enlist around August of 1963. He uh, attended basic training in Fort Dix, New Jersey, for six weeks. And because he did well, uh, he was assigned to uh, Army Intelligence School, which at the time was held at uh, in Maryland, actually almost right across from the current National Security Agency uh, at, their, at their school. And uh, after finishing there in December of 1963, he was posted to the National Security Agency. 
So let's talk about his time uh, in the Army. Uh, you know, one of the things I have to wonder about, now granted, we're talking about something that occurred uh, uh, over 50 years ago when he uh, joined the Army, but uh, he obviously passed background screening to receive his classified uh, access. Did he slip through the net? And maybe you could talk about uh, what he did was as part of his job. Well, first of all, I don't know how much background investigation they did at the time. He, again, was in the Army as, a, as just a basic soldier originally. When he graduated from intelligence school at Fort Holabird, uh, he was uh, given a clearance. And uh, the interesting thing was he never, he didn't do anything wrong for the first uh, almost two years of his assignment. He was apparently a, a decent clerk. He had a clerical duty. He worked in a, in a small office that had about six to eight teleprinter machines, and all incoming and outgoing National Security Agency message traffic came through that room. And he, his job was to clear the teleprinter messages, and then he would put them in different pigeonhole uh, mailboxes for whatever supervisor it was deemed the message was uh, intended to go to. Uh, there would be multiple copies of those messages. He would throw out in the burn bag anything that the uh, any extra copies, either that or by September of 1965, decided to put them inside of his shirt or taped around his leg for subsequent trans transmission to his KGB contacts. However, he, um, he also had access to any other kinds of information from other agencies that might come across the, through the mailroom because he was to file everything, one copy of the original of each piece of correspondence to, into the special file room. So literally he had access to every piece of NSA classified information from 1963 until 1967. So just to kind of reiterate that point, you know, we're not talking about somebody who is the hierarchy of the National Security Agency. Robert Lipka was a clerk who basically saw incoming and outgoing information and was able to you know, steal some of that information or make copies. That information, when you say that he saw a lot of it, how potentially dangerous was that information? Well, it was, it was critical information. Some of it were the uh, presidential daily and weekly briefs. Uh, they were the intelligence briefings given by the entire intelligence community, CIA, NSA, etc., to the president every morning and summarized every week. Uh, it included troop movements, uh, of our troops in Vietnam, and all kinds of intelligence uh, for the president's eyes only. Uh, that was the most significant. It also identified NSA sites, NSA targets, NSA systems uh, around the globe. So, I mean, he literally had access to just about everything in terms of uh, our intelligence capabilities. And, okay, I think we, I need to take a step back here when you're telling your story. Uh, we're talking about the information that uh, he did pass on to the Soviets, but it was rather brazen in how he made his first contact. As you said, the first two years of his job, that uh, he seemed to do it quite well. How did he come in contact with the KGB and the Soviets? He actually made a, a decision uh, reason which is still unknown to this day, to uh, go and walk into the Soviet embassy in Washington, D.C. He took with him some material from NSA on that trip. He was uh, asked for $400, which he was paid, 
And at that, during that meeting with the KGB in Washington at the embassy, he was given instructions uh, for various drop sites, places where he could put his documents in the future, a schedule for drop sites, uh, for meetings, which was every two weeks, and uh, locations, and also locations for pickups of his money. Uh, he was paid, he was, he was offered $500 for every two weeks or $1,000 a month for his information. So how much money did he make over the course? This went on for how many years, and how much money did he make over the course of his time dealing with the Soviets? Well, while involved with NSA, from September of 1965, when he walked into the embassy, until August of 1967, that's a two-year period, when he left the military because his enlistment period expired, he was paid $27,000. He also, there's some information in the investigation that he continued some kind of contact with the KGB through 1974. And there's indications from a secondary source of ours, uh, the FBI's, that uh, he was paid up to $150,000 through 1972. We do know that he did take documents with him when he left NSA. Now, I don't know how valuable they would have been. He would know better uh, what kind of information would be more lasting rather than some quick daily summaries of the president. Uh, so we're not sure exactly how much he was paid above the 27000 but it may have been up to $150,000, which is a lot of money back in the day. Well, I was going to say that $150,000 is a lot of money today, although I don't know whether uh, there are spies that would risk their uh, safety and freedom for that amount of money. But back in those days, $27,000 to $150,000, that was a lot of money. Well, that's correct. And he was making, to be honest with you, he was was being paid um, $200 a month as a sergeant at the time when he was working at NSA. And that was, and he was getting a thousand dollars a month from the Soviets. So that was five times his monthly salary. And I tell people that we speak about this case: just multiply your monthly salary times five today, and you'll see the significance of the amount of money that the Soviets were truly paying him. Was Lipka living it up on this money? No. In fact, he lived a very Spartan lifestyle. He would uh, he would get his money and would bring it home and open the packet which contained the money and the instructions for his next meeting. And he'd sit on the sofa with his wife, and they'd count it and throw it up in the air. And she would later say it was just like James Bond. And uh, they would bank it, and they slowly bought uh, Ethan Allen furniture. with her. But uh, very cautious. In fact, uh, he, he was never flashing in any way whatsoever. Now, you know, one of the big questions, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about something that could put lives in danger. I mean, anytime there's espionage, there could be lives put in danger. Are you aware of anyone who lost their lives as a result of the information that Lipka provided to the KGB? The only thing that we know about that is that when this case was finished, uh, when he was sentenced uh, into jail, he wrote a letter to the prosecutor, and he did mention that uh, even though that there were some people who died in the 60s based upon what he had done, we should focus uh, our attention on his sons in the 90s because uh, the children of a convicted felon never turn out well. In other words, he was trying to get himself out of jail 
by admitting that some soldiers had been killed in Vietnam based on his information. Uh, but he was he thought it would be more important that was in the past we should be focusing on his sons in the 90s. Um, that's the only insight we have into who might have been hurt. We don't know if that's one or two soldiers or a hundred or a thousand. It's just uh, we haven't been able to prove that yet. Mm. Uh, Vietnam actually was what I had in mind because, uh, you know, if he's providing information on troop movements and uh, obviously the, the Soviet Union was a close ally of North Vietnam uh, during that era, it, it, it doesn't uh, take a stretch to see that that could have happened. So, as you mentioned, uh, that, uh, you know, Lipka came up with a number of places to make drops. Some of them were even local here in central Pennsylvania, including Long's Park in Lancaster, right? That's correct. Long's Park was one of his uh, drop sites, and he was uh, serviced there by two KGB illegal agents uh, who were actually living and working in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania at the time. Um, he would uh, either meet with them personally, but more likely would pass and clear drops at that location. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that, especially uh, thinking about the mid-60s when communism and the Soviet, we were at the height of the, the Cold War, but communism was, you know, such the, the number one target for uh, the, the government, that two KGB agents in Upper Darby wouldn't be have been trailed or there wouldn't be surveillance. I guess either they weren't suspected or they didn't know about it? Well, strangely enough, they uh, they obviously were trained in in Russia as uh, in Soviet Union as KGB illegals. Uh, when they were ready to go out to the West, they were uh, they went, moved to Germany, to East Germany, and were given fake marriage certificates. It was a male and female uh, under West acting uh, under West German um, license. They then emigrated into Canada eventually, as two German uh, citizens. They subsequently, from Canada, moved to uh, Buffalo, New York. And when they arrived in Buffalo, New York, the FBI finally was able to identify them through other sources in government as two KGB illegals. So then in Buffalo, New York, uh, we began surveillance of them, uh, mostly to watch them. They, they then moved from Buffalo, New York, uh, Buffalo, to New York City, New York, and stayed there for about nine months. They actually replaced Rudolf Abel, who was the first known KGB officer who was arrested in New York City, I believe, in 1957. Uh, they stayed there for about nine months and then moved to Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. Now, the whole time they were in the United States, from the time we identified them in Buffalo, New York, as KGB illegals, we had a big case on them. And we did follow them and watch them. But, you know, you have to be very careful that you don't get made on the surveillance. So when they came here to uh, Upper Darby, we, did, we were aware that they were in contact uh, with people, but they had a, a job at a bubblegum factory, and uh, uh, we followed them to New York City and knew they were involved with the KGB officers in New York. But nobody really knew about a direct contact with them out in Lancaster until near the end. April of 1968, they actually did travel to the Lancaster area. Uh, however, the surveillance was broken off because the agents thought they had been made, 
so they didn't follow him out there. And what they did that day was they actually left a postcard in Robert Lipko's mailbox uh, seeking uh, a, new, a face-to-face meeting with him in the following a couple months later. Did that happen? It actually did happen. He was now he was out of the service. He was in the uh, he was going to Millersville College at the time. And he uh, we believe they requested a meeting around Thanksgiving or Christmas, and he met with them and was not happy. Uh, we think uh, we think that he made that they made him an offer he couldn't refuse, kind of thing. Like we'd like you to finish college and come back and work for us again but we're not sure if that happened. Mm. Um, and we think that later, in a few years later, he ran into some financial problems. He may have reached out to the KGB and said, hey, look, I'm going to graduate from college. What's it worth to you for me to come back uh, and work for you at NSA? Um, and that's why we think he was paid the extra money, uh, up to that $150,000, saying he needed money for school and he needed money for rent. And he, as soon as he got his degree, he might go back and help them. And, they would certainly be willing to pay for him to come back because he was such a valuable asset and never had any problems. But uh, I think he knew he was out and he was safe and he wasn't going to go back in. We're telling the story of Robert Lipka, a spy for the Soviet Union who was living in Millersville, Lancaster County with John Whiteside. We'll have more of the story coming up right after this. We're telling the story of Soviet spy Robert Lipka, who was living in Lancaster County when he was arrested. Our guest today is former FBI agent John Whiteside. He's author of the book Fool's Mate, A True Story of Espionage at the National Security Agency. If you have a question, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Agent Whiteside, before we get into the uh, case itself, how you went about uh, investigating Lipka and bringing him down. You mentioned that uh, Lipka was living in Millersville and going to to college at what then was Millersville State College, now Millersville University. Uh, So why Millersville? What was he doing? Well, when he got out of school, uh, not sure why he returned to the Millersville area because, again, he was he had attended uh, high school in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, at uh, Cumberland Valley High School. Uh, he, he returned to Millersville with his wife. She was a a nursing assistant. Uh, she had been in nursing school when he met her down in Maryland, and uh, she actually had a job at St. Joseph's Hospital in Lancaster. So he would attend college at Millersville. I believe he was working on a, an education degree. And uh, he would go to school in the mornings, would come home. She would work a 4 to 12 shift in the afternoon so that he could study and take care of the baby that they had in 19, uh, just before they left NSA. Uh, They had a a baby girl in May of 1967. So it was a a handful for a young 21-year-old to cope with all that, I think. And the wife actually was instrumental in arresting Lipka, right? Yeah, the wife was one of our our best witnesses. It was uh, she was actually an ex-wife. Um, they had had a, a rocky marriage, uh, divorced in 1974 or 1975. And after we had done some initial in- investigation on with Lipka in an undercover situation, uh, we, we interviewed the wife, and she eventually admitted to her knowledge of his espionage activities as she knew them. And uh, because there's, 
in the law there's a spousal privilege where a wife and husband can't testify against each other. However, if one of those two abets or aids in the commission of a crime, that marital privilege is revoked. And in this particular case with Lipka, she would go on several of his clandestine drops and be instructed by him to either honk the horn or flash the lights if someone was coming uh, while he was out clearing or filling his drop. So that was a very beneficial thing for us. And she she ultimately was uh, a big help and would have testified against him had we gone to trial. So how did you formulate your strategy for pursuing Robert Lipka? Well, the strategy was pretty, in a couple of points, it sounds a lot more simple than it was, but initially it was, uh, we get the information from this KGB defector by the name of Vasily Matrokin. Uh, we, uh, you never know if he really, you know, if this was a, a KGB plot to just slow the FBI down with a fake name or something. So we checked all his information out. We, we located Lipka. Uh, we did some early surveillance on him just to see if he existed, who he was, where he worked, that kind of thing. Um, we reviewed his background, investigated his background file at NSA to make sure he even had the ability to have access to classified information to see what kind of job he had. And, of course, we were quite shocked to see that he had access to almost every NSA secret that came through his office. Uh, so we knew he had a security clearance. We knew he had access to the information. We knew he was in, uh, he did go to Lancaster, he went to, went to college at Norrisville. Uh, everything that we were told was accurate. The question was, did he do it? Did he really pass the information? Was he really a spy for the KGB? So we initiated a false flag investigation or operation against him using an undercover FBI agent to make contact with him, posing as a Russian intelligence officer. That uh, special agent you're talking about is Dmitry Jujinsky. Why was he vital to this investigation? Well, we <laughs> Dmitry had a, a, a huge role to play. He was going to meet Lipka uh, in the guise of being a GRU, or Soviet former Soviet military officer, rather than a KGB officer. And the reason I did this was because we knew we would make some mistakes uh, when meeting him face-to-face. -face. We just didn't know much. A lot of what I've, I've told you already came after we met with Lipka. Um, so we didn't know a whole lot about him other than what Matrokin had told us and what we saw in his file and a little bit of our investigation. The premise for Dimitri was you were a big help for the KGB back in the 60s and 70s. We would like to review your information with you and get you back on board in the 90s, and you know, we'll be happy to pay you for that information. That was the, the trick. That was what we hoped. And what we hoped he would do was talk about what he passed, how he passed it, where his drop sites were, who he met, how much money he was paid, that kind of thing. So, of course, we could pay him more if he wanted it. Uh, that was the essence of the false flag. And that was Dimitri's job to draw that information from him. We weren't asking him to, com to commit a crime. We were asking him to talk about his past crimes. But this almost didn't happen. Agent uh, Drujinsky uh, got a hotel room in the Lancaster area, just called uh, Lipka on the telephone and, you know, said, uh, laid out some kind of story that they should meet. But one of the things that uh, became very important, well, when they did meet, uh, Lipka uh, wanted 
a password. And he put a word, uh, an R with, uh, you know, three blank spaces down below on a on dust on uh, a dashboard of a car. And he wanted, you know, this password before he would say anything. So Dimitri was in a real was in a real bad situation at that point because he had no idea what the password was and thought the whole case could be dead at that point. Describe what happened next. Well, yeah, not a little bit of that information is uh, just a little bit incorrect. Oh, okay. 26 years of memory. That came out in the Smithsonian Magazine. Yes. It, it's, it's that fairly accurate. Uh, what, what happened was Dimitri and Lipka were speaking together. They'd been together in the car for about eight minutes. They had just met each other. Um, it was just some small talk. And at one point, Lipka was talking about a friend of his just rambling on, which he tended to do. And he, and he mumbled something like, I always beat him in chess. And Dimitri looked at him and said, oh, are you a chess player? And Lipka looked up and said, you didn't know that? And Dimitri says, well, you know, uh, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't, the files are in Moscow, I'm here in the United States. Lipka says, before we go any further, right on here, I want you to write a code word. And he handed him, a, he took a magazine that Dimitri had had with him from the hotel and and said, you know, right on here, write my code word. You know what it is. And Dimitri says, no, no, I don't. He says, you don't have a code word for me? And Dimitri says, no, uh, the code word is in Moscow. I'm here in, in uh, you know, Pennsylvania. And he says, well, uh, if you can't uh, meet, if you can't fill this out, and he put an R, and he actually just put two dash lines. Oh, he did, okay. So it didn't spell Brook. Uh, he said, if you can't fill this out, by the next time we meet, I don't think I'll talk to you again. And Dimitri, they talked a little bit more, and, and Lipka said, you know, it was always it was for my securities, always was. And then he said, everything I did, I did for money. And it was incredible that, you know, he actually gave us his motive for espionage. Everything he did, he did for money. And yet, even though Dimitri didn't have the code word at that moment, Lipka went on and talked to him for another hour. Now, he didn't give him a lot of good information, but he gave us a little, a few gems uh, about his past relationship. They agreed to meet the following day. And so we go up to the room. We listen to the recording of the conversation over and over again. Believe me, it took us eight, ten hours. We all sat there, a group of us. What are we going to do? And he, we looked at this magazine, and uh, I asked Dimitri, uh, how did he react when you said he, you didn't know he played chess? He kind of backed away, like surprised. And that's when he said, here, right, right on here, the code word, and put the R. He says, if you can't fill that out, I don't think we'll meet again. And uh, just at one point in that 10-hour period when we were trying to game plan the following day, I remembered a little note, a notebook that was found in the KGB Illegals Apartment in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. And on a piece of paper, amidst a bunch of other things that, they, that was found, was the word R-O-E-C-K. Nobody knew what it meant, but it had some coordinates of Long's Park in Lancaster. And that just came to me at the time, and I said, I, I think I know the code word. <clears throat> and I and told everybody, I think it's Rook, this R-O-E-C-K. We don't know what the word meant, but we knew it had something to do with Long Park. So armed with nothing else and no other chance, Dimitri took that the next day, went out and met Lipka. They sat in the car, and Lipka hands him a piece of paper and says, circle the name on there. There were three Russian names. <clears throat> Dmitry says, in connection with what? 
Lifka says, you don't know any of those three names? Dimitri says, I know them, you know, in some way. He says, do you have a packet for me? And Dimitri thinks, I don't know what a packet is. What is he talking about? Well, I think Lipka meant a packet of money. And at that point, Dimitri is like, I don't know the three names. I don't have a packet. He looks at Lipka and says, does the word rook mean anything to you? And Lipka goes, yes. And then he puts his hand to his chest and gasps like, thank God. They shake hands. They laugh. And the code word was obviously accepted. And then Lipka subsequently went up to the hotel room that we had and talked to Dimitri for another hour and a half. However, we did make a big mistake during that series of events. One of the names on the piece of paper was Pavel Grachev. And Pavel Grachev was the Soviet defense minister. And if you were posing, or if you were a GRU officer, as Dmitry was posing to be, that would be like uh, an FBI agent saying, I never heard of J. Edgar Hoover. So Lipka smelled something. But he went up to the room. He did discuss some of his drop sites, told us a little bit more about his wife, and that she didn't know too much of what he was doing. Uh, gave us one of his alibis that he'd use if you ever get caught by the FBI. And uh, we, we gleaned some, some good information from him. But he never admitted any or identified any documents that he ever passed the NSA. Mm. You guys got lucky. You know that. I know. <laughs> you know, it takes a little bit. <laughs> uh, and the way that uh, uh, that uh, Dimitri actually worked this case, uh, and, well, all of you, it was almost like a chess game. When was the moment you knew that you had you had the guy and, and had enough information to make the case? Well, one good thing was uh, it never was with his stuff. I mean, he gave us a few pearls. We only met him, Dimitri only really met him four times. We did physically met him four times. Uh, we did have, uh, we met him twice in Lancaster that weekend. We met him once in July, and then we met him once in December. And every time we met, we were getting less from him, and we just thought, this is not going anywhere. So we stopped that. We concentrated on his former wife when she admitted things, and she was given immunity from prosecution. Uh, spending six or eight months with her off and on, gleaning more information. She became more relaxed. That was helpful. And then we, um, we did some interviews of his friends at NSA and things like that. But then when we got Matrokin, the KGB officer, and got him willing to testify to seeing this original information about Lipka being a spy, uh, when he agreed to testify in court, and that was kind of the last hurdle. Uh, and then we had FBI agents who had done surveillances up in New York of the KGB illegals back in the 60s. They were willing to testify. There were agents in Philadelphia who had done the investigation of the illegals here. Uh, they were going to testify. And I mean, these guys were in their 80s, but uh, they were still willing to, to do the job. And that's kind of when we knew we had them. And I thought just from working the case for three or four years, um, that he was the kind of guy, Lipka, he talked a lot. He was brash and brave and bold, but there were so many instances in his life when push came to shove, he always backed down. And I was convinced that he would plead guilty because he was just that way, you know. And uh, and he did. He pled guilty. We offered him a great plea agreement. Um, he was The plea agreement was for 18 years. But we said if you would come in, talk to the FBI, talk about your motives, 
talk about when you first went into the embassy, who you met, who you worked with, what did you pass, that kind of thing. We will go to the judge and reduce your sentence as long as you can pass a polygraph that everything you tell us is true. So he agreed to that. I mean, he's got two young sons, 12 and 14 by this point, and he keeps worrying about He acts like he's so worried about them. So we bring him in for his, his lawyers with him. His lawyer pleads with him, red-faced, to tell the truth because he knows he's not telling the truth. And Lipka wouldn't remember it, couldn't remember anything. He didn't know why he went in, didn't remember his motivation, didn't, you know, claimed he only passed about eight documents, only had about three or four meets, only was paid $1,200. And uh, that was it. Belittled everything he did. He was given a polygraph, and we all knew he would fail. He failed miserably. So he, he lost the deal. He lost the early out for his sons. And yet when he went to court in front of the judge before sentencing, he pled with the judge. He said, you know, Abraham Lincoln freed all the Confederate soldiers, even after they killed all the Union soldiers and all this bloodshed. You should free me too because i have these two sons <laughs> it's, it was literally unbelievable yeah it's pathetic really <laughs> it's pathetic. it was a, a joke yeah. but i mean here's a guy who you know we talked about his sons but he wasn't willing to tell us what he did so he could go back to his sons he wasn't willing to do that so the judge sentenced him to the full 18 years to find him uh, ten thousand dollars which was the maximum fine for espionage in the 60s and find him another ten thousand dollars for the $10,000 the FBI had paid him during the undercover operation. Dimitri actually paid him $10,000 uh, for his uh, future assistance. But, oh. uh, well, i, I got to tell you, Agent Whiteside, it's a fascinating story. It's not something that uh, uh, many people would think of as Lancaster, Upper Darby, all those places, Mechanicsburg, being a hotbed for uh, espionage with the Soviet Union. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. Former FBI agent John Whiteside, he's the author of the book Fool's Mate, A True Story of Espionage at the National Security Agency. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. And we're going to be talking with Gary Smith, author of What the Luck, the pick of the month for the month of November, uh, coming up here in the next few days. Many of us have been or will be shopping for toys to give to children as holiday gifts. Unfortunately, not every toy ends up being a beloved plaything. Some can potentially be dangerous. Toy safety and questions about toy safety is our topic for this segment of the program today. Joining us is David Pollack, personal injury attorney and managing partner at Daly Anstein Law Firm in New York. Mr. Pollack, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Also joining us on the line is Michael Rolls, who is field director for the Pennsylvania Public Interest Research Group. Mr. Rolls, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. If you have a question or a comment about dangerous toys, 1-800-729-7532, or you can send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, Michael Rolls, let me start with you. And here's the broad question. What should we be looking for, or maybe what we should be avoiding with a toy? Sure. So uh, we just released our 31st annual toy safety report, Trouble in Toyland. Um, this year it was a little bit different. What we did was um, our researchers poured through uh, the website of the Consumer Product uh, Safety Commission 
uh, found that there were 44 toys recalled between January 2015 and October 2016, uh, and we were able to find that 16 of those 44 toys are still available online. Um, one thing that parents can, and caregivers can do is go to our website, www.toysafetytips.org. Um, but for a larger list of recalled toys, uh, www.recalls.gov, the, the point here is that there are two things. One, um, there could be previously recalled toys in your house, uh, and two, um, some of those recalled toys are still available for sale online. Um, so those are two websites that parents and caregivers can go to to make sure and verify that uh, they, are, uh, they have safe products in their home. You're talking specifically about toys that have been recalled for safety reasons. That's correct, yep. David Pollack, uh, and let's talk about the, the law a little bit, uh, but, and we are going to talk about the law with, with, throughout the program, but how can you find out, now, you, know, uh, you know, we just heard one way to find out when going to the website, but how can someone find out about whether a toy has been recalled or not? Well, these new websites are fabulous. Uh, what uh, the Public Interest Research Group has and also the Consumer Product Safety Commission. But think of it in terms of medicine. Uh, what Michael's doing and this group is doing and the Consumer Product Safety Commission is doing is kind of like the vaccine. Uh, we're going to try and pre-treat so that you're aware ahead of time. I'm on the back end. I'm an attorney that represents parties who have been injured. So if somehow it slipped through the cracks and you didn't get the vaccine and you're not prepared, what if you're then injured? And now there's a whole body of law, including federal and state law, that can help Pennsylvania residents if they've been injured by one of these unsafe toys. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But I want to go down through the, the, the list, Michael, of uh, some of the hazards that are out there. And maybe you can talk about each one of them just a, a little more specifically. Toxic hazards. I mean, I, I think that a lot of people know what we're talking about, but give us some examples. Sure. Uh, well, we know we're all familiar with the hazards of lead <clears throat> in our products. Uh, lead's been uh, essentially banned in all of our paint products since 1977. We were actually able to find a toy uh, that we were able to buy offline um, that has a high level of lead in one of the uh, – it's, it's, a, it's a monkey glockenspiel. It's a toy glockenspiel for toddlers. Uh, and in the pink paint, uh, it was found to have high levels of lead. So that's one uh, toxic that people should look out for. Another thing is um, – high PVCs in plastic products. Um, you know, depending on the amounts of PVC in plastic products, uh, parents should be aware, you know, not all of them have this chemical called phthalates, um, but parents should be aware the rule of thumb is to avoid anything with PVC in their children's products. Those are two of the common uh, toxics that parents and caregivers should look out for uh, when looking at children's products. Okay, you say parents should be looking out for them. How can they find out? I mean, ahead of time, because it's not like toys have their, uh, you know, the, the, the ingredients like food items do on the side of the box. Right. Well, actually, uh, you know, the Consumer Product Safety Commission did... Uh, uh, put, it, put together a few regulations. There are a few laws in place that actually do re- require um, warnings on uh, products. For example, um, small parts um, for, for children. Uh, you know, anything that has small parts for children, they have that warning on, on products. There are certain warnings that are uh, in place uh, to make sure that parents and caregivers are aware before they buy that product. Mm-hmm. And David, I saw you shaking your head as he was talking about the, the warning system. Scott, you're spot on. It's a serious, practical problem. Um, 
a lot of these toys, as, as Michael was pointing out, are available online. They're typically made overseas. You don't know exactly the details of how they were manufactured. And so consequently, consumers are in a real bind. Uh, you're trying to find information that's not readily available. And even if there are regulations, we have the Child Safety Protection Act, the Consumer Product Safety Act. There's an awful lot of wide gaps in these laws that things can slip through. And that's why, as I pointed out earlier, it's great to have preventative measures in place. But unfortunately, things get to the other end of that story where folks do get injured. Mm. Uh, so, Michael, let's go back to, to the list. Uh, choking. And uh, I, I guess I was a little bit surprised when I saw that the balloons are the toy item, if you want to call balloons a, a toy item, uh, the number one item that uh, children choke on. Talk about uh, some of the choking hazards of, uh, that are potentially out there. Choking hazards are the leading cause of recalls. Um, between 2005 and 2014, at least 72 children have choked to death on balloons, small parts, uh, small balls, uh, parts of toys. Um, the rule of thumb that I tell uh, parents and caregivers is, uh, is you can... Uh, it's a product that we all have in our, all of our homes. It's a, um, a standard size toilet paper roll or a paper towel roll. If your toy fits in that paper towel roll or that toilet paper roll, um, we deem it two unsafe for children, uh, three and under. Um, so that's one thing that parents should be aware of, uh, caregivers should be aware of, is uh, if you can find a product in your home uh, that your child of three or under uh, plays with um, and you can fit it in that tube, do not let them play with it. Ingestion. You talked about uh, swallowing things. And uh, again, I learned something from your website that two magnets swallowed can be fatal. Yes. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Uh, so small magnets are very, very dangerous. Um, I, I tend to warn people not to allow, you know, children to play with magnets, uh, you know, five and under, um, especially the small magnets. You know, everyone remembers the buckyballs from the popular buckyballs, which were rare earth magnets. Um, those were recalled several years ago and were still being sold in different places. But, um, you know, small magnets are, can lead to uh, ingestion hazards where, you know, it's, it leads to surgery, it leads to real um, invasive medical procedures to take care of. Um, if you see anything that is not recalled that has a small magnet or a small choking hazard, um, parents and caregivers should go to www.saferproducts.gov. Um, it may not be recalled, and that's something that cons the Consumer Product Safety Commission, you know, as David was talking about, you know, things do fall through the cracks, but you can report it yourself to www.saferproducts.gov to make sure that they are investigating and looking at those things. Fire hazards, uh, lithium batteries and products. We We've heard uh, a number of cases here in the last few months uh, about uh, some products, some not just toys, but uh, cell phones uh, that the lithium batteries have just caught on fire and in some cases destroyed homes, uh, cars, everything else. What about fire hazards? Fire hazards. Uh, yeah, that's that's one thing that uh, is, is becoming more and more popular because of the popularity of electronic toys and electronic products. We all remember the uh, hoverboards, the, the knockoff hoverboards that were being sold uh, a year or two ago. Um, you know, one thing that we found was uh, one toy that, um, you know, the battery, uh, the charger that has batteries in it uh, is overheating, and that is also a fire hazard. It's also, it also burns in kids' hands. Um, that, is, uh, that was one product that we were able to find online and actually purchase. Um, fire hazards are one thing to be aware of. Um, anything, anytime you buy an electronic toy for a child, just, you know, 
uh, keep it on the lookout. Don't uh, don't let it um, uh, stay. It's just I, I would I would to specifically recommend that parents and caregivers monitor anything that uh, is electronic uh, for the sake of a fire hazard. And once again, the saferproducts.gov website is there for you if you do see it. Well, you know, I mentioned that we were concerned about, uh, like, Chinese right, products right. and we're unregulated. Mm -hmm. And so a parent might think, well, if I buy from a major American manufacturer, I'll be okay. I just flew back from New Orleans at a convention, and the way the stewardess walked up and down, or I'm sorry, flight attendant, <laughs> walked up and down the aisle and collected anyone who had that Samsung cell phone. Right, they right. literally will not let you have them anymore. That's a major manufacturer. And so, you know... Uh, when we talk about, um, gee, I'll be okay as long as I go with a major manufacturer, we remember the Corvair and the Pinto gas tank and so forth. So don't have a false sense of security that you're okay just because you bought a major item from a major manufacturer. I want to talk more about that in just a moment. But one final uh, piece here, uh, you know, one, one final piece here, Michael, is uh, laceration dangers. You know, I got to thinking about this. Isn't anything... Uh, Potentially, uh, you know, if it's sharp enough, or you know, the, the you know, you use it, on, you know, badly, or in some way, your luck is bad that uh, uh, could be lacerated with something. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, laceration hazards are also a, a hazard <laughs> um, for sure. You know, I think one thing uh, that the one thing that we should be aware of is, you know, anything that has a laceration hazard, choking hazard, overheating, you know, toxic things, um, just be aware. First, check to make sure if it's recalled or not. Second, if it seems unsafe or if your child is injured, obviously first send them to the emergency room, but second, uh, go to safer pro um, sorry, saferproducts.gov. Um, those are two things that you need to do. Um, you know, I, and, and one thing, one point that David makes about foreign products Absolutely. You know, a lot of these products are manufactured uh, originally in foreign countries. You know, I think the one point to make here, though, is that um, it, it, it is the responsibility as soon as it comes into this country, all products are within the laws and jurisdiction of the United States. And if they are violating that, they need to be held accountable. Let's talk about that, David, if you would, because that's one of the things I wanted to ask if laws are different from a, a product that has been made overseas. It's not. Uh, and, and Michael's exactly right that once it's within our marketplace, it's subject to our laws. And that sounds great. But now let's talk practicality. How do you find a way to collect damages from some obscure Chinese company who used a dummy corporation in South Texas that then distributed it to another corporation somewhere else? You, you find yourself in the midst of a rat's maze trying to actually get results. And so while it's great that we have these laws and that we can pound our fist on the table and say we need more of them, there, there comes a practical side where you can't always do something about it. Mm -hmm. And this kind of goes back to what both of you were saying and using your example of the vaccine of it makes a whole lot of sense to look ahead of time for parents to check ahead of time rather than after, uh, you know, a child has been harmed by uh, by one of these toys. You know, David, something I did want to ask about is that, you know, a lot of times, you know, we buy uh, toys at this time of year at department stores or big box stores or online, but there are a lot of people who buy, uh, you know, some as we refer to them as gently used products from consignment or yard sales. Uh, what laws are there in place for this type of resale? 
Well, the manufacturer of the product is still responsible. As long as the product has always been used in its intended fashion, uh, so, for example, a screwdriver used as a screwdriver, if it's defective, the manufacturer, even if you bought it at a flea market, is still responsible for the product. So we have that ultimate end game of going after the manufacturer. What we've lost, however, is that middle ground, which is the laws also protect you by going against proper sellers in the course of the marketplace. If there's not a proper seller, then you've lost that avenue. But you still have the manufacturer that you can still go against. What about registering? I mean, most products, when you take it out of the package, there's that little card that you can register. Most times, folks are a little cynical about that. They thinking are. That Very often, we, sure. don't, we just toss it. Sure. Uh, a couple things. Number one, it does affect warranties and things, and it does help make things easier. But it also gives you a connection to the manufacturer so that if there is a recall, your information is available, and there are federal laws in place that they are supposed to use the most effective means possible at communicating recall. Well, they've got a card with your name on it that you bought it. So... As, as cynical as we may be, I think you should fill them out and send them back. Well, one of the reasons we're cynical is because most of us think that we're going to be contacted by that company. Solicited. Tr- that's right. Sure. Trying to sell something else. Uh, you know, Michael, I have a question here from a listener. Faith in Lancaster wanted to know, and I don't know if you can answer this or not, but wanted to know if Hess Toy Products are safe this year. Hess Toy Products. Um, that is a good question. I am. I, I know that they do the Hess trucks every year. Um, that is a question that I don't know the direct answer to. Um, again, if you see any small parts um, within the Hess truck, you know, and you're giving it to a three-year-old, uh, you know, make sure that it doesn't fit within that tube. Um, you know, I'm, I'm unaware of any hazards with the Hess trucks this year. Um, but that is a good question. Do you know of any? I, I don't. Um, but I, I think I'll, I'll echo what we've been sort of implying and haven't actually said is parents have some duties here, too. We can't just sit back and say, oh, well, we'll sue or use some common sense. Look the product over and decide, is it appropriate? So for years, my my children are all grown now, but they had uh, Hot Wheels and micro machines mm-hmm. and so forth. Well, the micro machine will definitely fit through Michael's cardboard tube he's talking about. So I imagine I shouldn't let my three-year-old play with that. And that's part of also some responsibility that the consumers have as well. Mm. There, are, there are consumer responsibilities. Okay, real quick, David, uh, what should you do or a family member do if, if someone is injured from a product? Start with obviously getting the proper medical care, but documenting it, creating a trail for it so that when the child goes and gets the medical treatment, take the product along, explain what happened so that there is a clear trail of it came from this incident. Take photographs, keep the product. A lot of times manufacturers will contact you and say, hey, send that to us. We'd like to investigate it. Don't do that. And needless to say, attorneys like myself will be glad to meet with you free of charge to Talk about it so you can be educated to make a smart decision. David Pollock is a personal injury attorney and managing partner at Daily Einstein Law Firm, and Michael Rolls, field director for the Pennsylvania Public Interest Research Group. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you.